Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The Volume. Hoops Tonight is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. The football season is coming, and there's no better place to start making every moment more than with FanDuel. I just love using this app. It's super user-friendly and safe. They have such a deep repertoire of odds and markets for every sport, and they have same-game parlays. You guys remember the same-game parlays that Liv Moods and I were throwing out during the NBA playoffs for the volume. Those were a ton of fun. All around, it's by far the best sports gambling experience I've come into contact with. If you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with promo code JasonT so they know I sent you. Again, promo code JasonT so they know I sent you. 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Louisiana, permitted parishes only, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. one 877 Hope NY or text Hope NY to 467-369 in New York. In Tennessee Redline, dial 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I hope all of you guys are having a great week so far. Packed show today. We are getting 
into the top 10 players in the NBA. We'll be doing number 10 through number 6 today. And then actually when we do the rest of the list, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, we're going to go one player at a time. And I really want to take our sweet time as we dive into each player, their strengths and their weaknesses, their history, their resume. I want to dive into you know some of their greatest moments throughout their career. I want to take our sweet time there. I think it should be a lot of fun. We're also going to briefly touch on the Nets drama, some updates after Josiah sent out a tweet having Sean Marks' back having Steve Nash's back. I thought that was a great indicator of the direction this is all heading, so we're going to touch on those things real quick. Uh, You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to the Volumes YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our content. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss any show announcements and things along those lines. And last but not least... If you can't get over to YouTube to finish one of these shows, but you're driving around town, you can always find the audio version of these shows on our podcast feed, wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. All right, let's get started. So uh, Josiah, as I expected, uh, came out in defense of Sean Marks and Steve Nash later in the day yesterday after we recorded uh, our kind of instant reaction video. That was to be expected. It's like the optics of him firing Steve Nash and Sean Marks after that report came back, even if he wanted to, even if he believed KD. It just would have been a really bad look for him. He would have come off looking like a weak owner that was succumbing to the demands of a disgruntled star, which would have just set a bad precedent any other time in the future that he would try to put his foot down with any player. Every relationship with every star he'd have in the future would come under the consideration that they are running the show as opposed to him. And it's just a simple question of principle. He chose principle. And that was kind of to be expected. We actually heard um, from I believe it was Jake Fisher from Bleacher Report reported today that uh, Josiah is actually very, very high on Sean Marks and is very pleased with the direction he has gone with the team and is very happy with Steve Nash and his ability to maximize the talent of the players that have come through Brooklyn. That's as, about as resounding a statement of support as you could find. Uh, Shams also reported today that KD is checked out Mentally, that obviously is not a shock. Generally speaking, when you think about making some sort of transition in your life, once you've mentally made that transition, it's really hard to go back. Think back to any time that you uh, made a career change, that you decided to quit a job, that you decided in your head, I'm going to try this, or I'm going to move there, or I'm going to break up with this person, or try to do like whatever it is that you're going to do. When you make that decision in your head, you start to envision the other side and then you focus on the positives there and then it becomes really difficult to ever mentally accept coming back to your current predicament. It's really hard to buy back in. I'm sure many of you guys have similar examples in your life that feel that way. So I doubt that KD is just going to suddenly buy back in uh, to the Brooklyn situation. The main reason why I wanted to talk about this again today you guys have heard me talk a lot about the idea of training camp threats. Like the, you see this all the time in uh, uh, when it comes to uh, trade requests and trade demands and things along those lines. They'll be like, "Oh, we're not afraid to take him into training camp this year." And what I've always said is like, "How do you expect on day one of training camp when you're attempting to you know implement a set of core values and principles and an offense and a defense and everything, and that's your best time to practice?" If you really think about the path of the NBA regular season and how when you really get into the grind of it, you might only have a handful of practices per month. 
And a lot of teams are scooting, uh, skipping shoot around these days in order to help teams with legs, especially older teams. So the reality is, is like training camp is is an immensely valuable period during the NBA season to implement who you are as a basketball team. That's why I actually value things like preseason outcomes in a way that a lot of other uh, analysts do not. I just really think that that's the time that you set the tone for who you are going to be, and then that tends to carry on uh, throughout the season. Obviously, it's not a hard or fast rule. There are teams that succeed despite rough starts, kind of like the Boston Celtics last year, but it's usually those are the few and far between, and the general that generally training camp does matter, and the early season does matter. So now I want you to imagine that you're sitting with Steve Nash in a video room and they're getting ready to lay down their core principles for the year, maybe lay down uh, some details of their their offense before they go out on the court to have their first practice of the season. And you're a young player and you're sitting in the, in the film room and Kevin Durant's two rows behind you and Kyrie's right next to him or nearby and there's Steve Nash in front of the room and Sean Marks is kind of standing on the side with his arms crossed and everybody in the room is thinking the same damn thing. Our two best players do not believe in these guys. They do not believe in Steve Nash. They do not believe in Sean Marks. That's not just reporting. That's essentially on the record. And Josiah confirmed that. I actually thought it was a little bit of a faux pas on Josiah's part to even send that tweet. He could have accomplished that with a phone call or a text message privately to the parties involved. He publicly stamped that report with that tweet. Now everyone knows that Katie and Kyrie do not believe in Sean Marks and in Steve Nash. I do believe that Kyrie's influence on Katie is different than what his actual public position is. Kyrie is saying all the right things like, oh, I want to be a net. I'm here to stay, blah, blah, blah. But we all know why that is. He wanted a long-term extension this year. He didn't get it. Because of his reputation from the previous two years. Next year, he's going to want a long-term extension because he's still pretty young. And he's still got a lot of money to make in the NBA. So he's on the pathway to restoring his image. I believe he would say things publicly to cultivate that image for the sake of signing a deal next year. But you bet your ass behind the scenes, he's still the same guy that was yelling that he's going to the Lakers soon uh, that on camera earlier in this summer. You bet your ass that he's in Ky- Kevin Durant's ear saying, nah, man, we got to get out of here, even if that's privately and under the table. But in terms of this specific situation with training camp, I just don't see a realistic situation where you as Brooklyn would want to move forward and start your season in the most crucial phase with two people who are effectively malcontents in the locker room. I just don't think that'd be a good idea. And then again, I've, I've seen, heard people say like, oh, well, what's the rush? Like, they're tanking anyway. No, they're not. They don't have their own draft picks. They have some draft picks, but they're not their draft picks. They've traded away the vast majority of their own draft capital. So they are not actually incentivized to lose. They are a team that's going to be looking to win and win right away. So if that's the case, and you're Joe Sy and Sean Marks, and you're looking at this as a basketball culture, and your basketball culture is not where you want it to be right now because these two guys are in charge in the locker room, and they come with this boatload of baggage and issues, right? You're going to want to cultivate a new basketball culture that's built around team first and you know, uh, not allowing stars to ex- exert control, and you're going to want to have a basketball focus, not a focus on you know things off the court. If that's the case, you don't Actually, you're not actually incentivized to wait an additional year to do that. You can start that process now, especially since your draft picks are not yours. 
So it's actually in their best interest to clean house before training camp so they can start fresh and begin the rebuilding of their culture this fall and get things started. Uh, and they can they have a lot of assets to to start that process if they trade KD, even if like Kyrie's worth at least first one first round draft pick as well. So they've got plenty to quickly kickstart this thing in the uh, in the right direction. So all of that that I just said to me makes it pretty clear that the Kevin Durant deal is going to go down sooner than later. Uh, my guess is still that it'll be either Toronto or Boston. My guess is that if uh, Toronto puts Scotty Barnes on the table, they'll get him. My theory is that Masai Ujiri wants him and would absolutely do that, but I think he's terrified that the Toronto fan base would revolt, and for good reason, but I think Masai Ujiri looks at that roster and goes, man, if I had Kevin Durant here, we would win all of the basketball games. I think that's where Masai's head head is at, so he's going to have that decision to make. I think that the fallback option for Brooklyn will end up being Boston, and if no better uh, option comes around, I think they'll go after Jalen Brown. Those of you guys who have listened to my player rankings list have seen how high I have Jalen Brown ranked. I'm super high on him. I think it'd be a great option for Brooklyn to build around in the immediate future. And then, and then hey, maybe you throw Ben Simmons out there with him and see see if it's a good fit there. All right, on that note, let's get into the top 10. Number 10, Kawhi Leonard. Now, uh, to be clear, he's not the 10th best player in the league. He's probably much higher than that if he is healthy. But in this case, I felt like this was a smart place to put him or a safe place to put him that applies the appropriate respect to what he's done in this league while giving favor to the players in front of him who have been more impactful lately because of their health. And availability is absolutely an ability. But I do believe that people have massively overlooked... I, should, I shouldn't put it that way. I think that all, collectively... As a basketball community, we've kind of forgotten a little bit just how damn good Kawhi Leonard is. So these are his stats from the 2021 season, uh, the year before he got hurt, obviously. Or the year that he did get hurt, I should say. 25-7-5 and five on 62% true shooting in the regular season. In the playoffs, 38-4 and four on 68% true shooting. These numbers that I'm about to read you guys are just preposterous. Everything that you've heard from me in the last couple weeks as we've done these player rankings pales in comparison to the numbers that I'm about to read to you. 4.2 made restricted area field goal attempts at 77%. Like I said, for a big power wing, I want that around 70 on the low end. He's at 77%. That's damn near a rim finisher like a guy, uh, like a big man in the dunker spot. 2.3 additional paint field goals at 49%. That's incredible. 2.9 may, or excuse me, 2.5 made mid-range jump shots per game on 66% shooting. That's outrageously good. That's unconscionably good. That doesn't even make sense. There's that that's so unbelievably deadly from that range that it should t- it takes every analytical argument and just throws it out the window. 44% on corner threes and 39% on above the break threes. Just outrageously efficient. He scored on 58% of his post-ups. By the way, all these numbers I'm reading are from the postseason. These were from playoff series. He scored on 58% of his post-ups, resulting in 1.21 points per possession. He took 81 pull-up jump shots off the dribble in that postseason run and made 40 of them, damn near half. He's just absolutely insanely good. And I'm very, very excited to watch him play basketball again this year. You know, one of the things that I wanted to hit on here is the value of strength in basketball, because Kawhi Leonard is an extremely strong player. 
uh, I had a, a foot injury after my freshman season in junior college. Uh, my first season in junior college, I was about 205 pounds and uh, freaky athlete. Like get my head at the rim. I was, I, I was above the rim all the time, but I struggled to get to the rim as a slasher because I was pretty thin. So I suffered a stress fracture in that off season and I had to take a couple of months off. And during that time, all I did was lift weights every single day. And I went into my second season at 225 pounds. So I'd add literally 20 pounds of muscle in one single off season. And I ended up making an all conference team that year. And a large part of that was the value of strength. It made me a much better rebounder. It made me a much better uh, uh, defensive player. And it made it so that when I was driving to the basket, I had an easier time maintaining my line, staying where, staying where I was as opposed to people bumping me off my line. I think people, basketball players in general, are obsessed with keeping their weight down for the sake of mobility. And I do understand that. Don't get me wrong. Like, there is a balance here. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this is Andre Gudala. He talks all the time. I think he, he plays around 220 as well. And, like, he talks about how, like, 222 is about the high end of where he feels like he can be an impactful defender, but he's actually more comfortable about 220. And he makes the decision to get up to 222 when he has to guard LeBron James in a playoff series because he needs the extra weight. It was from, I think, one of his books a while back. But it's an interesting concept. There is a balance. There's a, there's a healthy balance between strength and carrying extra weight and keeping your mobility. But I think strength is vastly become one of the most underrated skills in the game of basketball and there are not enough young players putting attention to detail into their strength training think of it like this every time you do anything on a basketball court there's contact basketball is a contact sport you are not just running free and loose all over the floor people are grabbing you people are holding you people are trying to get in your way people are fighting you for position and in those situations, every little bit of muscle that you have is, is an extra ability to fight and claw for position. When you rip through and try to go to the rim, if a guy does a little bit of hand checking, which is probably not going to get called, it might be the difference between him containing you and keeping you in front and you ripping right through him and getting all the way to the rim. It's an immensely valuable skill, and it's one of the great reasons why Kawhi Leonard is so, so successful on the basketball court. He can get to any spot he wants on the floor. I've talked about this before ages ago, so a lot of you guys who have gotten onto the show recently won't remember this, but Kawhi Leonard uniquely with his fadeaway uses his strength to get easy shots. You know, I always talk about the difference between making extremely difficult shots versus working really hard to get easy shots. You know, you'll see guys like Steph Curry do this by moving without the basketball. You'll see LeBron James do this by quick duck-ins and seals around the basket to get easy layups. For Kawhi Leonard, it, you see it in his mid-range game. When he is working you uh, from the perimeter into the lane and he's got you on his hip, he'll give you a hard bump with his right shoulder and then rise up from 17 feet. It's a wide open shot, even though he was guarded, because he's so damn strong that he bumped you off. With his fadeaway, I've talked about this before, there's two different kinds of fadeaway jump shooters. Fadeaway jump shooters who do it with their athleticism and fadeaway jump, jump shooters that do it with their strength. A guy like LeBron, ironically, does it with his athleticism. He fades wildly away from the basket, almost like comically on his fadeaway. Kawhi Leonard, it's like a hard bump with his shoulder before he turns and it's almost straight up and down. But that's why he's so deadly from that range. His fadeaway is not a difficult jump shot. It is a short, balanced, easy, open jump shot that he gets to by using his strength to work you to a spot on the floor where he's comfortable and then bumping you off with one of his big-ass shoulders and getting up into his spot or getting up into his shot. 
And then that strength obviously continues to help you on the defensive end when you're the guy who's applying that physicality to the person that you're guarding. Moral of the story here, work on your strength. Like it is just like there's a fine line. You want to make sure that you're mobile and that you can cover the ground that you need to. But if you're a young basketball player, do not overlook the weight room. It's a very, very important part of the game. Um, He's a dominant defensive player still, even though he's not quite what he was. But that's to be expected as he became, you know, he was a defensive player of the year once, but that was in an era when he was not being used as much offensively. But still in high leverage moments, he can be a huge problem there. We even saw that as he made, obviously he can't shut down Luka, but he's made in his last two playoff runs where he went up against Luka Doncic, there were stretches of those series where he put, he got onto Luka, made things extremely difficult and had some success there. On the playmaking front, he used to be pretty much the worst playmaking star in the entire league, like to the point where it was a glaring, glaring weakness. He's still in that conversation, but he has become respectable. Like he can make your basic pocket passes and pick and roll if you run drop coverage to him, or he can make basic kickouts. That is definitely a weakness of his, those, uh, though. And then health is obviously uh, a huge part of it as well. I've heard mixed intel on, Kawhi, uh, on Kawhi's knee. I've heard from people that would know that it's degenerative and it may never get better. And then I've heard people say that, you know, that, that, that that's BS and he's fine. As is always the case, Kawhi Leonard keeps such a, a tight circle that it's really difficult to get a feel for, uh, f- uh, for the truth coming out of uh, when it comes to reports on Kawhi. Um, we talked a little bit about the Clippers last year or last, uh, last show and involving their roster. But I do think this is an interesting kind of like, pivotal year for this era of Clippers basketball. We all think of the Lakers as the shit show and the Clippers as the team that have it together. And there's a lot of truth to that. The Clippers have a better owner that's willing to spend and that gets out of the way of basketball making decisions. That he accepts advice from people that know what they're talking about. The way that their roster is put together is extremely modern and forward-thinking and well-rounded and versatile, and they've got a really good basketball coach. They are well-run from the top down, but the reality is, is we've had three seasons of this battle for LA, and the Lakers have one championship and the Clippers have zero. They... And you know, for all you want to say about the 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 uh, for all you want to say about the the unprofessionalism or whatever you want to say, the chaotic nature of the Lakers, they won a championship. And then they had another year that was successful despite injuries, and then they had this disaster. For the Clippers, they had an incredibly ugly, disappointing, blown 3-1 lead against the Denver Nuggets, and then they lost in the 2021 playoffs due to injuries, and they lost in the 2022 playoffs due to injuries. So the reality is, is that they have a big old bagel to show for their results, despite having, for their efforts, despite having a fantastic roster, as we've laid out before, at the guard position, they're stacked. Reggie Jackson, John Wall is a backup. Norman Powell is another small guard that can dribble drive. On the wing, they've got Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, Marcus Morris, Nicholas Batum, Robert Covington, Terrence Mann, Luke Kennard. Like they are absolutely stacked there. And then they have a big guy, a solid big in Zubats that they can go to when they want to play traditional drop coverages and things along those lines. The pressure is on now because if Kawhi gets hurt again or Paul George gets hurt again, it's no longer a question of bad luck. It's a question of the reality of their bodies and the way that they hold up under the grind of the NBA season because Paul George has a consistent injury history and so does Kawhi Leonard. You have a roster completely stacked full of talent. You absolutely are a top-tier championship contender when you are healthy. You had three, cho- three shots and nothing has come from it. This is the year. 
Kawhi Leonard and Paul George have to get this done. If they get hurt again, it'll be time for the Clippers to consider the reality of the fact that those guys can't hold up. And if they get if they don't get the trophy when healthy, then that brings up an entirely different list of concerns. So the Clippers are absolutely under a lot of pressure to get it done this year. Number nine, Jimmy Butler. In this regular season, 21-6-6 on 59% true shooting. And in this playoff run, (laughs) in classic Jimmy fashion, uh, 27-7-5 on 60% true shooting. 4.7 restricted area makes on 71% shooting. That's fantastic in this postseason run. 1.6 mid-range makes on 41% uh, uh, in the mid-range. That's pretty damn good as well. Takes care of the basketball exceptionally well. He's never had a single postseason where he's averaged over three turnovers per game. There's nothing exceptional in the averages. When we look at Jimmy Butler's numbers throughout his, even in that 2020 playoff run, the one that he went to the finals and came within two wins of the title, there's nothing exceptional going on there in the averages. What happens with Jimmy Butler is one of the strangest things that I've seen in the game of basketball. On any given night, and it's unlikely, it's about a one out of every four chance, but on any given postseason night, he is capable of elevating his game to a level that is rivaled only by the all-time greats. He is a guy that, on the vast majority of nights, plays like a top 20 NBA player. But on any one out of every three, one out of every four playoff games, he plays like a top five NBA, NBA NBA player. I've never seen anything like it. It doesn't make any sense. In this playoff run, he scored 40 plus four times. He also scored 15 or less four times. In the 2020 finals, he scored 40 twice. He scored 40 in game five to extend the series and then scored 12 in the elimination game. That's just kind of the way it is. You saw it in this Boston Celtics series. It was like, damn good at the beginning of the series, horrifically bad in the middle of the series, and then otherworldly good at the end of the series. It's a magic power. I have absolutely no uh, way to describe it or explain it to you. It's just playoff Jimmy Butler. It's a phenomenon that I cannot possibly explain to you. He doesn't shoot the ball well enough consistently. He has legitimate weaknesses in his game that are the reason why he's a top 20 player, not a top five player. But those weaknesses just disappear and he becomes mini LeBron in these massive playoff games on occasion. It, it is, it is, it, I, I guess if I had to, if I had to try to explain it to you, I would say it's a couple of those specific playoff things that I've always valued, right? Like strength. He's strong. So he succeeds in the physicality of the playoffs. He's a good playmaker, in the right setting, although it does, again, nothing exceptional playmaking in the averages, but then he turns into a guy who can get you 12 assists a game <laughs> in, in the right setting, right? He's clutch shot making. He's, he's a, he can make plays at the end of games. That was a huge deal in the 2020 finals. Obviously, he's an impact defensive player. He's turned into, in the Miami Heat, like ball pressure system, he's turned into a menace. And then just the power of supreme irrational confidence. When Jimmy Butler gets in an arena with LeBron James, he thinks up here that he's every bit as good as LeBron James. That's obviously insane, but that's what he thinks. And when you couple that with all those things that I just laid out, you get a a playoff Jimmy performance. You know, if he could figure out how to keep his body healthy and to shoot the ball consistently well, I do believe he would be a consistent top six or seven player in the NBA, a full-blown superstar. 
but those are the things that end up being inconsistent for him. His body pretty consistently breaks down as the season progresses and his jump shot leaves him in a lot of uh, important moments. Uh, But I have a ton of respect for Jimmy Butler. You know, again, that supreme confidence is everything. Like you've, you've seen DeMar DeRozan be a better regular season player than Jimmy pretty consistently throughout his career, but then he'll get in an arena with LeBron James and he'll immediately kind of shrink and, and, and fall apart mentally and then you'll see Jimmy Butler be like, nah, screw that. I'm better than this guy. <laughs> you know, it's, it, is, it is heat culture personified. Everything about the Miami Heat franchise and what they've tried to do with Pat Riley and Eric Spolstra, Jimmy Butler is the embodiment of that. And he's kind of the perfect guy uh, to lead their charge. As far as the Heat go, they need more offense. I mean, that was what ended up ultimately holding them back. I think they would have absolutely made the finals if they had one other guy who could create his own shot. Like I said yesterday, I don't really see the a realistic path to them getting Kevin Durant. Yet their name, their the Heat keep getting mentioned in that conversation. God knows why. Uh, I would be targeting Donovan Mitchell if I was the Miami Heat because I think that's actually an achievable player that they can get with the current assets that they have, and that's a much more interesting player to put in the backcourt alongside Jimmy Butler as a real scoring threat. I also think that Eric Spolstra and Pat Riley would get him to commit again to the defensive end of the floor. Number eight, Joel Embiid. This is going to get me in trouble with some people, but it is what it is. That's how this works. Uh, in this regular season, 31-12-4 on 62% true shooting. Uh, in the playoffs, 24-11-2 on 59% true shooting, albeit he did have uh, an orbital bone fracture. Um, before I get any further into this, because Jokic is coming up soon as well, I've talked about this before. Um, on this show, but I wanted to lay it out here for the sake of this list. I value perimeter players more than bigs. Like, we're going to get to it here in a second, but like, I have Jason Tatum ahead of Embiid and Jokic. The reason for that is, is I value the role of what Jason Tatum does for a basketball team more than the role that Joel Embiid or Nikola Jokic fulfills, even though they are the best centers that we've seen in recent NBA history. First of all, Foot speed, as, as the game has evolved and has become more five out, meaning more perimeter players and less interior players, and faster pace, meaning more pushing the ball in transition, foot speed has become immensely important. In those situations, slow plotting bigs like Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic can be exposed. Also, with the way that floor spacing works, it's a lot easier to deny bigs the basketball than it is to deny a perimeter player the basketball. The ability to dribble the basketball up the court against ball pressure allows you to, to as a perimeter player, to, to control your own outcome as you initiate the offense. As a big man, you have to fight for position someplace on the floor and get a post entry. Obviously, Nikola Jokic can bring the ball up the floor if he has to, but if you put some pressure on him, he can struggle with that as well. Bigs just in general, it's a different dynamic on the basketball court. This is why when I do all-time rankings, I keep bigs in a separate list from perimeter players. They play an entirely different position, and for me, I value what a, a perimeter player does more. Um, perimeter shooting, the, like both Jokic and Embiid are really inconsistent putting the ball in the basket from the perimeter. We'll talk about this a little bit more with Jokic in a little bit, but that becomes an issue when it comes to floor spacing and the way teams that can guard you. Also, contact that is allowed in the low post. With the way that the game has evolved, perimeter players are officiated in a very ticky-tack way. You can't touch them. You can't get up underneath them. You can't do that kind of stuff. Post players, it's anything goes. And so just with the way that the, the rules are, 
it's disadvantageous to be a big man who's operating around the basket. So those are, and you know, just in general, when it, when it comes to a, a confined half court environment, a big perimeter player that can dissect the, uh, the defense from all three levels. I think that's a level of, uh, of value in the game of basketball that a big man cannot replicate for the record. That's just my philosophy. This is just the way I see the game. So if you guys are at home and you're like, Jason, that's stupid. Jokic is the best player in the world or Embiid's the best player in the world. Big men are going to run the league. You're crazy. That's fine. As a matter of fact, leave, write it out in the comments. I want to see you guys tell me why you feel that way. I'm, I'm not Mr. I have everything in the game of basketball figured out. I have my belief systems. You guys have yours. I try to listen to as many smart basketball minds as I can to try to learn. You guys know I'm not married to any sort of idea, so I want to hear why you guys think I'm wrong if that's the case. But just so you know, as an explanation moving forward, I value perimeter players more. So Embiid uh, was 79% on 4.2 restricted area makes in the playoffs. That's excellent. He continues to be completely unguardable in single coverage. There are maybe three guys that had liked their chances in that situation. Anthony Davis, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and Rudy Gobert. But even with them, uh, Joel Embiid's going to have some wins in those situations. The revelation since the James Harden trade has been how good Joel Embiid is in short roll situations. James Harden, because of his ability to shoot off the dribble, forces guards to chase him over the top. And even though he struggled to get downhill penetration the way he used to, teams are forced to bracket him because as he's coming off of that ball screen, the defender's caught in behind him. And so the roll man, uh, excuse me, the screen defender, the, the big, has to come up to contain James Harden. And so Joel Embiid's getting all of these opportunities in the short roll, catching the ball on short lobs or bounce passes right it around the semicircle and he has been absolutely unstoppable in that position getting fouls and finishes at the rim even making some reads out of that situation albeit that's a, a, a specific weakness of his but that was the revelation of this playoff run and of this season the James Harden pairing has unlocked Joel Embiid as a short roller He's another guy that has supreme confidence, genuinely believes he's the best player in the world that shows up in clutch shooting, despite him being pretty bad at putting the ball in the basket away from the basket uh, as he gets further away from the rim. He's 100% a believer in his ability to make those shots, and you see that in big situations, just like it was uh, at the end of that Toronto Raptors game that he stole um, up there in Toronto. And then he's a very good defensive anchor as long as he's allowed to stay at the rim. But that, again, brings up the shortcoming that I was talking about with Biggs. Any scheme can force uh, any smart team that has the personnel can go out there and force Joel Embiid to cover on the perimeter, pull him away from the rim, and that limits his impact. Now, obviously, I have Joel Embiid way down at eight, so there are some weaknesses that I'm going to point out here. In this playoff run, Joel Embiid shot just 33% on all attempts outside of the restricted area. So again, that's not paint. That's not short range. That's restricted area. So if he's not right under the basket, he's missing two out of every three shots. That was just in this playoff run, but it's been a, a, an issue for him throughout his career. And this is why I keep saying this on the show. And every time I get people that get upset, Joel Embiid is actually not that good at putting the ball in the basket as he gets further away. He relies on finishing at the rim and drawing fouls. That's where the vast majority of his offense comes. He has these highlight plays, a dream shake for a fadeaway jump shot, a nasty pull-up three over the top of Nikola Jokic uh, off of a dribble combo. That all looks great, but in the percentages, it's not actually manifesting in results. That is a specific weakness of his. He relies heavily on the whistle. 
He's a very poor playmaker, averaged just two assists per game in this playoff run. This is something that I've talked about going into the season, coming out of the season. It's just a reality. If you double-team Joel Embiid, he's not good at making reads out of that. Not a hyper-criticism of him in general because almost every big is like that. Even Jokic in this postseason run averaged six assists with five turnovers. So he's considered the best playmaking big in the world, and he had a pretty rough uh, postseason as a playmaker. Anthony Davis can't read double teams. Carl Anthony Towns can't read double teams. So Embiid's not is not like uniquely weak at that. It's just the reality of the way bigs are, and it also has a lot to do with the way floor spacing works in post up situations. It's just it's just it's just tough to succeed there. He's always going to put up monster numbers. But his impact can be limited in a playoff series due to scoutable weaknesses. If you run the floor on him, he's going to struggle. If you double him in the post, he's going to struggle. If you make him guard in space, he's going to struggle. If you defend without fouling away from the basket, he's going to miss shots. So in a playoff setting, when when a coach has a chance to scout, and try out different things with personnel to see what works best, you can vastly limit Joel Embiid's impact. That's why he's at number eight, despite being potentially the best regular season player in the entire game. And last but not least, and this is this is just a real, I have to reveal my biases. I'm not a huge fan of Joel Embiid in general. And the main reason has to do with his foul baiting approach. Um, I'm not going to lie to you guys about that and act like I'm being 100% you know, unbiased. I'm not a huge fan of Joel Embiid. The way he approaches the game, you know, I've I've tweeted out dozens of clips over the years of him like being wide open, you know, four feet from the basket and like jumping into a guy's chest and kicking his legs and falling over and me being like, dude, what are you doing, man? And then you watch him in interviews and he genuinely thinks he's getting fouled all the time, which guess what? He does get fouled a lot, just like every NBA superstar. The difference is, is he makes a clown show out of himself trying to draw free throws in those situations. Now, I would never accuse him of doing this on purpose. He absolutely did not do this on purpose. But on the play where Joel Embiid fell over and ran into Danny Green, he was flopping. And he flopped and fell with his giant frame on the floor and slid into his own teammate and ripped up his knee. Now, in general, when we are when, when we all go up to LA Fitness and we play, or you're playing in your men's league, or hell, if you're playing a different sport, it's generally considered reckless to throw your body on the floor around knees and ankles. But to Joel Embiid, it's all about getting those two free throws. And I, I have a, I, I genuinely have a problem with that as a basketball fan. So that that I just feel, I, I feel like it's important for me to point that out because that absolutely is going to color my analysis of him. I'm human just like all of you guys. I'm not immune to biases. I have a problem with his foul baiting approach. I thought he played a role in Danny Green's injury, even though it wasn't on purpose. Uh, and it just, it's just, he's just, he's just not my favorite NBA player. All right, number seven, Nikola Jokic. 27, 14, and eight on 66% true shooting in the regular season. That's insane. 31, 13, and six on 64% true shooting in that playoff series against the Gold, uh, against Golden State Warriors, really damn good. 4.7 made restricted area attempts on 72%. 3.4 other paint makes on 61%. That's great. Um, more methodical and under control than Embiid. Uh, like more, he has more of like a view of the the full scope of the game. He's the, I talk about flow of the game all the time, but understanding the value of sixty possessions over the value of six possessions. The best example that I can think of uh, to demonstrate this to you guys was their regular season matchup this year in Philly, which Denver won, by the way. But early in the game, 
Uh, Embiid was having his way with Jokic on a handful of isolation possessions. There were, he was hitting crazy wild crossover jump shots and drawing fouls and just having his way with Jokic on a handful of possessions. Then on the other end of the floor, there were a couple plays where Jokic tried to score over Embiid and struggled against his size and length. If you look at that as the one-on-one matchup for a small handful of possessions, you might think, oh, Joel Embiid's the better player. But each player impacts the game beyond those moments because there are 60, 70, 80 possessions in a game depending on the pace, right? And it's actually about what happens with your team in the totality of those possessions, not in the small handful. I did a video on this. You'd have to dig way back into my Twitter mentions to find it. But in the regular season towards the end, after uh, uh, Philly lost at home to Denver, I did a video breakdown of exactly what I'm talking about. So you can see some representations of this. But in that game, Jokic won it in the second half with little things that didn't show up in the box score. He would consistently get the rebound after getting a stop and make a quick outlet pass to a streaking Denver Nugget who would run a quick two-on-one break or three-on-two break and get a layup. And on most of those plays, he did not get an assist because there'd be an additional pass after. But Jokic, one of his best strengths is kickstarting a break with uh, with quick rebounds and outlet passes. It's a unique skill that not many bigs in the league have. It used to be Kevin Love, one of Kevin Love's greatest skills back in the day. But that he won that game by kickstarting their fast break, which got Bones Highland going. And then Bones Highland made a couple of massive threes at the end. And then the same way that Embiid has always struggled, Denver crowded him and got the ball out of his hands at the end of the game and he couldn't score. And they lost. So again, like, there, I, I've always believed that basketball is a very intricately complicated game, that there's a hundred different moving parts and it can never be simplified down to one thing, like a one-on-one possession. And I say that, as, like, I'm a scorer. I build my game around things like what Embiid does. I, I, I love the footwork and, and, and the fluidity that Joel Embiid has. That, that, to me, I have a great deal of respect for the amount of work he put in to do those things. I'm just saying that's one small part of the larger organism that is the game of basketball. And Nikola Jokic is so much better at things surrounding that that he's actually a better basketball player. You know, I talked about this earlier, but most bigs struggle with playmaking. Jokic had a pretty rough postseason, albeit missing a bunch of his personnel. Only had six assists on with five turnovers per game. But he is the best playmaking big that we have in the league. And there's a great deal of value when it comes to playmaking out of the high post. Denver's offense is primarily predicated on Jokic catching the ball at the elbow extended up, okay, and having running dribble handoff actions or screen and roll actions with guys like Michael Porter Jr., guys like Jamal Murray, who both were hurt, and in this past season, lesser guards, right? But in that situation, the threat of his ability to turn and shoot and his, the threat of his passing ability makes it extremely difficult to guard because most of the guards that they play could shoot So he'd run that dribble handoff and the guard would have to chase them over the top and the guards either going to get ahead of steam as the role as the the, uh, Jokic's defender has to step over to contain or he's got to stay with Jokic in which case the guard gets uh, easy stuff there. The reason why his playmaking is so valuable there is the middle of the floor is known in the game of basketball as the hardest place to double team. If you double team in the low block, there's it's easy to kind of set up a, uh, your spacing in a way that you can help out of the weak side corner, but make them throw a looping skip pass. It's really difficult. Uh, it's really difficult to make them pay for double teaming there. If you double, you know, on the perimeter, right? Like if you double, uh, um, you know, on the left wing or on the right wing, it there's there's a lot of ground to cover 
on the other side of the floor that allows you to rotate, right? The ball has to be thrown in a looping manner across the floor. But if I'm dead center of the floor, if I'm at the elbow, if they double team me there, it's a quick pass to the open man. And that specifically is what makes Jokic such an effective playmaker out of the high post. It's the location on the floor, the way that it makes teams, it makes makes it difficult for teams to double and the way that it frees things up for his guards. The one thing that I, that that is a massive red flag for Nikola Jokic right now is the deterioration of his perimeter shooting. And I was on this a little bit towards the end of the regular season, and I thought it was a big part of what made him struggle so much towards the end of the season, opening the door for other MVP candidates, and also what ended up hurting him in the Golden State Warriors series. Not that I thought he had a realistic chance to win that series, but... Um, he's a career 41% three-point shooter in the postseason before this year. 41% on 207 attempts. So Jokic used to be a deadly three-point shooter. Something happened. Not sure what it is. He was 19% from three over his last 21 regular season games. And he was five for 18 from three in the playoffs. Overall, in this playoff run, I think he was 38% when he got away from the restricted area, if I remember correctly. Uh, Don't quote me on that because I I, I didn't put that uh, stat down in my notes. But he struggled to shoot as he got further away from the basket. What that causes... uh, Now, that same dynamic I was talking about earlier with those dribble handoffs with Jokic. Obviously, the guard has to chase over the top, right? Because of of the shooting ability of the guard, right? So, in that situation... The fear is I have to leave Jokic as the big man defender in order to help my guard get back into the play on that dribble handoff. That's terrifying if Jokic can shoot. But if he becomes a non-shooting threat, which he was over the course of the end of this season, the last quarter of the season and in the playoffs, if he's a non-shooting threat... There's way more freedom for the big man who's guarding Jokic to drop back off of Jokic and help in those dribble handoff actions. That is something he's going to have to fix in time for this next season for Denver to reach their ultimate ceiling. And then lastly, there's some major uh, defensive limitations. He's turned himself into a solid drop coverage big against teams that drive right into him. Um, But I did another video on this that you can find in my Twitter feed if you're willing to scroll back far enough from a game that the Boston Celtics beat the Denver Nuggets. And in that game, Boston was routinely barbecuing Jokic in a drop coverage because he was sitting too far back. He lacks foot speed. So the only way to utilize him as a defensive player is to have him drop back and have him hover around the rim so that he doesn't have to cover uh, out on the perimeter. You saw this in further detail in the Golden State series when they, uh, when Steph Curry kept attacking him in drop coverage and was just going right around him to get to the rim whenever he wants. That's not necessarily a Jokic weakness. That's more of just a big, slow center weakness. It's one of the many reasons why I'm kind of anti-big, slow center in general. Um, but that makes him a functional, regular season defensive big, but a defensive big that has some limitations in the playoffs. That's one of the many reasons that I have him lower on this list. It's time for... Nikola Jokic to have his guys to get Jamal Murray back to get Michael Porter Jr. back because I'm ready to see him play with some stakes again. The last time we saw Jokic play with real stakes and with a real team, he straight up outplayed Kawhi Leonard in a playoff series. Now, the unique thing there, I'm saying that for a specific reason. I was really hard on Anthony Davis when I think I had him back at like 18 in this list. That's a reminder of just how damn good Anthony Davis was in the bubble 
because in the same way that Jokic outplayed Kawhi in that first round or second round series, Anthony Davis outplayed Nikola Jokic in the conference finals. So it's just a it's it's a reminder of just how damn good Anthony Davis can be when his head is right, when he's healthy, when he has his body weight down, and when he can actually knock down uh, perimeter jump shots. But I'm ready to see Nikola Jokic uh, um, play with some stakes again, so we can see what he's got. And last note there, my guy Carson thinks that Nikola Jokic might be the best player in the league, so sincere apologies to Carson for ranking him so low. I'm sure I'll be hearing about that soon enough. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Does the craziness of everyday life leave you feeling stressed and shedding? Since having kids, have you started to see a little more of your scalp? Are you unhappy with your hairline? When it comes to thinning hair, there are many root causes at play, and Nutrafol addresses them through a multi-targeted, whole-body approach. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement, with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, and faster-growing hair with less shedding. Physician-formulated with drug-free ingredients, Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting key root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism through whole-body health. Take their hair wellness quiz at Nutrafol.com for a personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription, or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day and you'll see results in three to six months. Take the first step to visibly thicker and healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription. And free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code Hoops, that's H-O-O-P-S. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code Hoops, H-O-O-P-S. That's Nutrafol.com, promo code Hoops. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Um, number six. Jason Tatum, 27, 8, and 4 in the regular season on 58% true shooting, 26, 7, and 6 on 56% true shooting in the postseason. A lot of that was taken away by a bad finals performance. He averaged 22, 7, and 7 on 37% from the field, 46% from three, and 66% from the free throw line in the finals. That bad series against Golden State kind of took away and kind of took the shine off the apple from what was an incredibly dominant regular season and postseason run. And that's why I have him as high as I do. He's kind of like the reverse DeMar DeRozan or Brandon Ingram. I talked to a lot about those guys being like three-level scorers that are primarily rim and mid-range oriented that struggle as they get out to like 23, 24 feet, especially above the break. 
Tatum Tatum is like the opposite of that. He only shoots six. He only shot sixty percent in the restricted area in this postseason run. That's bad for a player of his size and athleticism and strength. Like I always say, for uh, big wings, I want that number at at least seventy percent. In the paint, non-restricted area, only thirty-two percent. That's bad. Uh, mid-range, thirty-seven percent. That's not great. But he was forty-one percent on seven above the break threes per game. That's outrageous efficiency. 46% overall from three in that postseason run. So that's a great example for how shot value can overcome shot conversion rate. Because those numbers that I threw out, you know, 60% in the restricted area, 32% in the paint non-restricted area, 37% from the mid-range, that should not amount to a 56% true shooting percentage. The reason why it does is because three-pointers are worth 50% more than any other shot on the floor. And if you make those ones, it will offset a lot of your inefficiencies elsewhere on the floor. But that's a great area of opportunity for Jason Tatum because what I would tell Jason Tatum is it'd be like, hey man, you shot 46% from three in the postseason. You shot 41% above the break. You're probably not going to get much better there. You have just about maxed out that ability. If you can polish up these other areas of the game, you can be the type of offensive engine that a you know LeBron James or Kevin Durant is. That's the next step for him in terms of his of his of his three level scoring. He had eight plus assists seven times in this postseason run, and in those games, the Celtics went seven and zero. Tatum's an, an interesting player in the sense that if you catch him on the right night, he looks like a legitimately great playmaker. But if you catch him on the wrong night, he looks like a tunnel vision player that doesn't understand how to run a team. Some of that's youth. Some of that is this is still really only like his like two and a half seasons of him being a primary ball handler. So he just needs a lot more reps. Um, but make no mistake, he's got that high end playmaking potential. Eight plus assists seven times in a postseason is a very, very good marker. And the 7-0 record is a demonstration of the way that impacts the team. That's why I was pleading all postseason long. Pass the ball, Tatum. Pass the ball, Jason. That's how you're winning games, you know? Um, I, I tweeted this out earlier today, and people were actually pretty receptive to it, which I was surprised. Uh, in all of my evaluations over the course of this last season, postseason, and this summer, I'm not sure that I saw a perimeter defensive player better than Jason Tatum. If you watch the tape of the first round against Brooklyn, yes, it was a team defense that was backing him up, an outstanding team defense. But the job that Jason Tatum did on Kevin Durant was extraordinary. He was kind of this unique capability of applying pressure, like getting up and being disruptive with Durant, while at the same time having the lateral quickness to contain his dribble drives. I always talk about the difference between positional and aggressive defense. He can do both which is what makes him so damn impactful on that end of the floor. Again, he's not the best defensive player in the league. I think that's Giannis. The best defensive player in the league has to be able to succeed as a backline defender, as a screen and roll defender, and as a perimeter defender. He has to be able to guard guards, wings, and bigs. Giannis is the only player in the world, really, that can do that really, really well. There are a handful of players. Also can Anthony Davis, Rudy Gobert, right? He's not the only one, but I think I think Giannis is the best. But strictly when it comes to, like, I need someone to guard a superstar wing or guard for a playoff series, I think Tatum is the best guy you could have for that role. 
it's a testament to the muscle that he's put on to become more stout and difficult to bully to spots on the floor. It's a testament to the length of his arms. It's a testament to his athleticism. It's a testament to his basketball IQ and his ability to anticipate the moves that people are making. And lastly, it's a testament to his effort and focus and him devoting resources to being a dominant defensive player. The biggest weakness for Tatum right now, and it's the reason why he lost in the NBA Finals, is offensive process. Like I said, he had eight plus assists um, seven times and went seven and zero in this playoff run. He also had four or fewer assists seven times in this postseason run and went one and six in those games. He had six plus turnovers seven times. Celtics went three and four in those games. So him his focus, you know, and this isn't entirely his fault. He grew up a classic wing scorer, and he is being. He's been grooming himself to become a traditional point forward a la LeBron James, a player that starts from the top of the key, runs you know, 40, 50 actions a game, and is responsible for creating shots for his teammates. That's a different role than more of like an unlocked perimeter scorer that is more like the tip of a spear. He's going from being the tip of the spear to being the actual to- total spear. It's a totally different role. So that's why he's undergoing kind of like an identity crisis on any given night. Catch him on the right night, he's bought into that role, he's passing the ball, the team looks great. But if you catch him on the wrong night, it's more like the old Jason Tatum, it's really bad shot selection, it's all of those things, and the team struggles. I think he'll get better that uh, with that as things as time goes on in his career. His rim finishing is another huge weakness. Like, I, like I've always said, for big, strong rim pressuring wings, I want at least 70% in the restricted area. He was down to 60% in this playoff run. Huge part of the problem there is him seeking fouls. He does that James Harden thing where he constantly like extends his elbows out and tries to go up through people to draw fouls. That's great when it works and you draw a foul, but what ends up mostly happening, especially as you get deeper into the playoffs, is they let that stuff go. And now what you did is you extended the ball out and made it a lot easier for guys to knock the ball out of your hands. And so that leads to him missing layups, falling into camera row and complaining at the refs while the team is running down the other way to get a layup. And so that's where I've talked about this before, but he needs to adopt that LeBron James approach. Tuck the basketball like a football player. As you pick up your dribble, rip through the traffic and then extend with both hands and finish at the rim. That's the that'll be the difference between him finishing sixty percent in the restricted area and getting back up into the seventies uh, where he belongs. And then, like I said earlier, thirty two percent paint non restricted area, thirty seven percent for mid range. That's not good enough either. You want you want to be as versatile and and you want to be like Kawhi Leonard. You want to be you want to be like Paul George. You want to be like these guys where they don't really have a weak spot on the floor. You want to be comfortable everywhere on the floor. The only way to do that is to polish up those short-range jump shots in the paint and getting more uh, proficient with his mid-range jump shooting. Um, the last thing I wanted to say about Jason Tatum is it's easy to get really down about what happened in that in that NBA Finals. It's easy to look at that as a huge negative, like, oh, he's not that guy, or he's not ready, or whatever it is that you want to say. I view great value in the failure in playing poorly, particularly on a big stage. I've talked about this with LeBron a lot over the years, but I think the best thing that happened to LeBron James in his career was losing the 2011 finals. I think he was accustomed to a certain level of work and then he got humiliated. And then the dominance that followed that was directly resulted uh, a directly result of the lesson that he learned 
in 2011. The LeBron post-2011 doesn't even resemble the LeBron pre-2011 in demeanor, in professionalism, in work ethic, and it showed in the uh, a diversity of his offensive attack. That's what caused him to put in the work to become a reliable jump shooter. That's what unlocked his low post game, which has become a huge part of his career as he's gotten older. That 2011 is viewed as a black mark by most people. I don't really think that's the right way to look at it. If he had a black mark like that and it became like James Harden, where it was like that year in and year out, that's a different story. But he responded to that black mark by putting on a stretch of remarkably dominant NBA basketball. Four championships in eight years or whatever it was. I can't remember off the top of my head. But the point is, is that failure could be the catalyst to the next phase of his career, right? That's the way you look at it with Jason Tatum. He got this close to an NBA championship. In fact, he should have won. As I said, after game three of the finals, the Celtics were the more talented team. Not the better team, but they were the more talented team. The reason why they lost was in large part due to Tatum's struggles. So he, there was a, a Larry O'Brien trophy right there for the taking. He was this close. And his weaknesses led to him losing that trophy. It slipped out of his fingers. I expect him to view that as the catal- as a catalyst moment in his career. And I think moving forward, he will understand the fact that him being the point forward versus the scoring forward was the reason why he had so much success in that run. I believe he will replicate that. And I think Jason Tatum is going to have a really dominant stretch of basketball over the course of the next few years. All right, so we are going to be doing the top five uh, over the course of the next week or so. Again, I'm going to do one player at a time there. I'm also going to be doing some, not revisionist history, but kind of reviewing their history, talking about their major moments in their career, their major achievements, uh, their, their development over the course of their career, intricate details of their skill set. I want to take my sweet time getting into those players. I'll be reading the comment section later tonight. I want you guys to drop any suggestions for things that you guys would like to see in those videos um, so that I can cater them to you guys a little bit better. As always, I sincerely appreciate your support and I'll see you guys in a couple of days. wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere like at your pregame barbecue while you prep your meats that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch garage and the car inside and without the right home and auto insurance coverage the cost to repair this could eat up your savings so bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this bundled savings variant are not available in every state coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions it's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff. 
Are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddy? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.